Thanks for dropping in. This episode's actually with Dr. Hoi Chu, but the topics we discussed here are more linguistics, literature, and music. Now, while I could have left it in the podcast, I actually decided to split it off. I felt like this would be a better bonus episode. You may have noticed that not all the history mentioned here is Canadian, although I am. Yes, I'm Rosie, a Francophone from Canada. Now let's talk about some history, hey? I know we had talked about this uh, earlier one day when we were talking about linguistics and you were explaining to me the differences in the languages between Hong Kong and China and the different regions. And if you don't mind talking a little bit about that, I thought that was very interesting and some people might not be aware. Well, long, long time ago, China was not one thing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, all kinds of reasons the people get together, war or simply dissolving culture and culture to a point what we call the first emperor. It was about 1000 BC. If I remember correctly, check on the history yeah. part of me. The kingdom would actually beat the crap of seven other countries to, to put China together. So now, China was all different cultures and uh, different indigenous More or less one peoples. culture, but it is a collective of many cultures and languages. Mm -hmm. And at that time, was manifest in, in eight different countries. But at a certain other point, it was one country called the Chao Dynasty. And then eventually, this emperor brought these countries together. But then he's scratching his head. Because the communication was difficult between these countries? Oh, yeah, because they, they speak different languages. Mm -hmm. In one country. In yeah. one, and now we're one country, what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> If it's India, it's actually really funny. Less official language is English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, because British uh, uh, people rule them for a while. And, and English is easy to learn. Uh, but you don't have English. 100 BC. Yeah. So <laughs> well, it was a mess back then. Yeah. No, no, no world dominant yeah. language. And so he came up with an idea. You don't unify language because they will require everybody to learn a new language. That's actually not possible. You can't suddenly say, okay, Canada is no longer French or English. Let's speak Ojibwe. Can't yeah. do that, right? But he came up with the fact that let's unify the way we write. It's ideographic language, so it doesn't matter, right? Because an image you, is an image, no matter what language yeah, you're using. Yeah, you, you see it. the moon, you can call it anything you want. Yes. <laughs> but but that symbol is the moon. moon in any spoken language. So he unified the writing. Mm -hmm. Did that bring up literacy just in general at that time? Well, of course, and mm -hmm. then and then you can actually the, the king can write something, and then everybody can understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they had their own writing systems then back then, probably a bit different, but not totally different. That's okay. why that's possible. And then you also remember there were no universal education, so people yes. who can read and write were relatively limited. Mm -hmm. So to make these people unify their writing is not it is a huge task, but not impossible and he did it. So in the European countries you see a lot of people that are literate writing and reading were you know the monks let's say in the medieval time. Who were the people that were literate? Was it more government officials? Of government? Uh, more than the religious officials? No, China does not have a single religion that, okay. that will run everything. Mm -hmm. uh, no, it's, it's a 
government rich people enough to pay tutors to, to teach learn. their children. Okay. Sometimes locally they can have schools. Uh, uh, they will put children there. So they are scholars who are poor uh, and things so like that. So there was a wide variety of people that were literate then. It wasn't just the uh, Yeah, the but rich. it's not, uh, not the percentage we have now. Okay, yeah. No, obviously. <laughs> Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. So we unify the writing. Now, most people know that they are Mandarin, Cantonese. So These were the two major ones in the more recent time. Cantonese was a older language, actually. More Chinese, actually. So if you read Tong poems in the 7th and 8th century, if you read it in Cantonese, it will rhyme. If you read it in Mandarin, it won't, sometimes. <laughs> Ancient Chinese was closer to Cantonese. Okay. So in different regions of China, you have different languages, as you had been mentioning. The linguistics were very interesting because people think that it's a different dialect of Chinese, but it's not. There are specific languages. Sometimes it's different dialects, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's actually entirely different languages. And in Hong Kong, which type of... Was it a dialect? In Hong Kong, it's primarily Cantonese. Okay. But so-called Cantonese is actually should be called Kwangchulis. Because the Canton province itself has uh, sixty different, at least sixty different languages and over three hundred dialects. Wow, that's the amazing. The Canton province yeah. itself, the the one that resisted the British opium, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. led to the opium war. They kept their culture. They kept their culture. It's the, it's actually a way to 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 keep people's culture without destroying their language. Mm-hmm. That's why, unless the entire country speak Mandarin, there's no way Cantonese will win anymore. Unless you have that, you can't phoneticize Chinese, and and still not ready for that. No. So children now they're learning Mandarin mostly in schools. No, in Hong no. Kong they're mostly Cantonese. That is the cultural aspect of the conflict. Okay. Because the well-developed China is now sending a lot of uh, Mandarin-speaking people to Hong Kong. And Cantonese is dying, partly of its own doing. I I went back to China. My parents live in the Canton province, not in Hong Kong. After they retire, they move up because it's cheaper there. And they are in in an area that is actually the origin of the Cantonese language. And everywhere speak Mandarin. The taxi driver, mm-hmm. everybody speak Mandarin. And then I asked my parents, how come everybody speak Mandarin now? <laughs> they said, yes, because Canton got too rich. Said, how does being rich have anything to do with it? Well, when people get rich, they do the better jobs, leaving nobody wanting to be taxi driver and waitress and so on. Then people from the rest of China come in and fill those positions. So you hear more Mandarin on an everyday basis at that point. Then you can't function without Mandarin, but you can function without Cantonese. And and then everybody studied Mandarin in, in school. Then now Cantonese became a kind of a local language instead of a key language. And Hong Kong is not like that. People there felt threatened by it. By Mandarin or by Cantonese? By Mandarin. By Mandarin, yeah. And that is another reason that there's a strong desire, not just a small fraction of the protesters were independent people who were seeking Hong Kong independence. And I think it's not fair that China identify the entire group like that. But a bigger group of it more so is to protect Hong Kong culture. They don't mind to be part of China, but they do not want to speak Mandarin and do more, sing Mandarin songs or do things like that. There is more a reaction, a, a cultural reaction to China. And Mandarin became a language from the common writing system. That's where Mandarin came from, or was it from a specific region in China, like the Cantonese? When the king or twin unified Chinese, there were no Mandarin. 
Okay. Mandarin actually uh, came from northern China much later. It is indeed actually not an original Chinese language, an invader language actually. But because once you use the same writing, it became yes. Chinese, so it's Chinese. But <laughs> so it was a language that was constructed from different dialects or different languages? It evolved much later. Let's put it later. that way. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. I don't it evolved know. much later and associated with some foreign invasion. But now all these cultures became part of China. But yes. when it stuck, it wasn't. So there was Mandarin. But now communists successfully put China back together. And in voting, which would be the national language, Mandarin won by one vote. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was a very big tie between Cantonese and Mandarin at that now, to be selfless and make an argument, mm-hmm. uh, I think it is the right thing. Cantonese is a hell to learn. It has a much richer tonality difference. Okay. Really, really difficult for anybody to learn who, who, whose mother tongue is not good. So I actually, I was surprised that Cantonese actually lose by only one vote is to lose bigger. Yeah. Mandarin is much easier language to learn. So the rules are a little more simplified or more across the board? The tonality. The tonality is easier. To speak it. I remember I attended an Anglican church when I was a high school kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sang in the choir. I wasn't a Christian, and but I loved singing, so I joined what was one of the best choir in Hong Kong. And it's Anglican church, so British church. So one of the top governmental officials, very nice woman, a British woman, came. She tried very hard, and she could actually could speak a really functional Cantonese. And she was reading, and then she said, let's turn to Xipin number, I forgot which number. Xipin is the song. It translated into Chinese uh, passages or poetry. Xipin is the actual pronunciation in Cantonese. Xipin, S-E-E-P-I-N. She got the tongue wrong. Mm -hmm. She says Xipin, Xipin, Xipin. Xipin is diapers. Oh, no. (laughs) Shit, pet. Xi, shit, pet. I'm sure, what, did the congregation laugh at that point? The congregation didn't laugh, no. but, but the children in the choir stuck giggling, yeah. of course. <laughs> I'm sure they understood what she meant. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. but that is, uh, that is Cantonese. <laughs> yeah, so Cantonese, the intonations are very close. Intonation, I think they said nine. I actually couldn't count nine. English has four, and so has Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And Cantonese has nine. Cantonese has nine. Wow. And that subtlety might not be caught by somebody who's not... Even though you know it, you won't yeah. keep track of it. It's too much. <laughs> yeah. And and that is why, even though I love Cantonese, especially when you are swearing or arguing, it's a much more vivid language. Yeah. When you play with pun because of the tonality, mm-hmm. it's a much more fun language. But to be an official language, Mandarin's better. <laughs> yeah, less complicated. Less complicated. And part of the conflict actually come from deep down is both economical and cultural. Mm-hmm. At the university, you do teach a lot of literature and English classes. So what's your favorite book or something you can recommend that really changed your world or that had an effect? Well, my dissertation was on James Joyce. Mm-hmm. For people who really want to become a writer, they really should carefully study Ulysses mm-hmm. because every chapter, every episode in Ulysses is a very different experiment on style and really push the limit of how language can go. Okay. Even uh, in the translations? Even in the translations. Yeah. I also think that something like the dub- dubbiners. 
Mm-hmm. Also, James Joyce short story I, I, is a really good way to teach students how to read. I actually spend time in my classes actually read the short story with the students in class instead of saying you go home and yes. read it. Um, actually read it with them because the, of the sophistication of how to read, how to feel, and also it gives a really deep understanding into human psychology. Human psychology, okay. Nature. To mm-hmm. Something actually is we can all identify. It was the first British colony, Ireland, suffered greatly in James Joyce's time. And it is basically, what he wrote about is, a, is a basically a, a group of people struggling in despair. Which is such a human condition. Which is a human condition mm-hmm. that we cannot overlook. And he was able to find good things in these people. Even though a lot of critics complain that the characters are so negative. <laughs> But you had to read between the lines. And he left Ireland and never returned. All his major works were written abroad. But he never wrote about anything else but Ireland. That's very and, interesting. And it's a really moving, a really powerful moment about mm-hmm. how literature works. And that's something I specialize in, actually. And, and I, of course, history takes an important yeah. part because <laughs> it's <course>. Ireland. <laughs> it's always important. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that. And I also know that you enjoy music quite a bit, and you're involved in a lot of music. And you have also maybe not necessarily a favorite, but some style of music that you prefer or something you want to mention about music. Dimitri Shostakovich. Yeah, that's the first thought. Oh, I, I have no doubt about it. I have been crazy about this guy since 1975 when I was nine years old. <laughs> yeah. And what was it about it that really spoke to you? Well, he's a socialist, but also suffer Stalin. Mm-hmm. Writing to survive in great despair. And I don't see... I mean, I see a lot of common connection between Joyce and, and Sostakovich, even though they live in very different history mm-hmm. and condition. But deep down, he's a real socialist. Not that he supports totalitarian states, as we often mm-hmm. misunderstood, uh, but, but somebody who writes music for the betterment of the society. One of the most powerful moments was Symphony Number no. 7, I believe. I forgot which. I uh, some Symphony Number no. 7 was written when Hitler was surrounding Leningrad and Moscow. A lot of people starved to death. Yeah. And he was he wrote the symphony and people in their hunger then the orchestra I think one third of the orchestra also uh, died and and they played it and it was a full house and there was the only hope to keep people together it's the kind of arts that I I care about because it care about the people it's he wrote not, it for a reason he didn't just he wrote it for a reason mm-hmm. he wrote it to make the world better to find voice for the people. To bring light into the to, world. To bring light into the world. Mm-hmm. You're right. In an almost impossible situation. And that is the kind of art that actually live on. I so mean, you the, enjoy those difficult stories that really still make you think, or the difficult music that still make you think about the situation at the time. So you're not just appreciating the art, but you're also appreciating all that history at the same time. <laughs> you really want me to say that I love history. I won't say that, but that's the condition how I can understand the art. But mm-hmm. history never touched me the way the art touched me. 
because it's not done to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but to understand certain arcs, sometimes, not actually, most of the time, you need the context to, to appreciate yes. it. So, so you say, why, why young people don't listen to classical music? Not because the classical music don't work, but, but because they don't have the context to understand it. When it was written. Or, or just the context to understand uh, artistically mm-hmm. what the artist is trying to do. Uh, um, I fell in love with Beethoven because of all the things that happened to him. Yep. Once you understand that, you, you it is so much more moving. And now it's not that the work of art itself doesn't stand alone. You, you listen to Beethoven without knowing his life, you can still be moved. Oh, to joy still is joyful in the last movement. Mm-hmm. The funeral march in the Eroica Symphony is still mm-hmm. a funeral march. But yeah. you know what Beethoven was struggling, his, his revolutionary impulse. Mm-hmm. There's another artist that really wants the world better with, mm-hmm. with, with his art. Then you appreciate so much more. Especially when he became deaf and he's still writing music. And yeah, it's just and, incredible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so to me, history is like I'm like a doctor, right? Uh, trying to take history of the patients. Mm-hmm. Do you to deal with a patient's cancer or diabetes without mm-hmm. history? You can, but you can do so much more if you have the history, right? Yes, absolutely. There's not always going to be a book recommendation for the bonus episodes, but this one fit right in. So the book recommendation today is more of an author recommendation. As you've heard Dr. Chu mention, anything by James Joyce, such as Ulysses or Dubliners he referred to, would be great to continue your learning. You can find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at History A. And apparently, you can rate me on iTunes. I also want to thank my husband, Jamie, our bunch of kids, our family, our friends, and all the people who had this crazy belief in me. As I've said before, un grand merci.